Our scripture reading this morning, it comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. And as I was thinking about reading this passage and then observing uh, this, this Advent play with the kids, I thought to myself that there's a poignant uh, message here that, that Pastor Frank is going to share with us. So let me read this, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt I called my son." Now, I forgot to invite you to stand for the reading, so I'd like to have you stand now, if that's all right. (laughs) We'll get it for half the reading, at least. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Tyler. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. Somebody's waving at me. Oh yeah, fourth through sixth graders, you need to be dismissed. Well, you don't need to. You can stay if you want, because this is going to be really cool. Anyway, um, I, I am a little disappointed in the play this year because we had uh, we had ordered um, camels, elephants, and lambs, but they didn't show up on time. So, elephant in this sanctuary—that would have been good. A couple of things. Uh, before we get started. By the way, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here. We're going through this Advent series, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. Last Sunday was our Commitment Sunday for our building initiative, and uh, I wanted to let you know that um, we're going to give you the final numbers uh, in January, early January, not January 1st, but probably January 8th. Um, And the reason is because a number of people reached out to us and said, Uh, that they really can't fill out the pledge until they get to the end of the year and they have a better idea where they are, which I understand. But in the meantime, we had a tremendous response this last Sunday, and we are well on our way to making this thing a reality and making it happen. So we are really encouraged. We are really encouraged so far by by what uh, people have uh, not only given but also pledged to give. So that's good news. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention was um, uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day. I want to make sure that you understand what we're doing those uh, those three times. So Christmas Eve is Saturday. We're going to have three services because Christmas is on a Sunday this year. So three services. We're going to do it at 2, 3.30, and and 5. The services each will be uh, a little bit under an hour. Um, There's going to be child care for only one of those services. Uh, they're family friendly, and uh, so we would, you know, heavy on music, and so we would encourage you to be there for those. There'll be candlelight at the end of each service as well. Uh, Sunday morning, my son-in-law, uh, Joey, um, uh, um, 
what's his last name? I'm kidding. McCar um, Macaulay. <laughs> I don't know why I keep thinking McCarthy. But anyway, Joey McCauley and I are going to lead us just in a Christmas hymn uh, service on Sunday morning. We're going to have some readings. We're going to sing hymns together. Uh, there will be no instrumentation, no uh, microphone, nothing like that. I'm just going to come and open the doors at 10 o'clock, and we're all going to come in here and sing for, together and read scripture for about 45 minutes. Come as you are. You, if you want to bring a bing bag chair or something, you can do that. You can come in, in pajamas if they're appropriate. You can come in pajamas uh, if you want, whatever, and, and we'll just sing together. We did this six years ago when Christmas was on a Sunday, and it was a, it was a lot of fun for us who came. And then uh, Chris, uh, New Year's Day also, we're going to have a hymn sing as well. That'll be our service at 10 o'clock. Only um, this one will be led by Tyler Thompson. And so uh, musically, I think it'll be better on Christmas so, or on New Year's Day. So anyway, all right. So let's get into our, our message today. Um, we're doing this Advent series that uh, Pastor Tyler James put together for us. We're looking at Jesus through these different perspectives, these different lenses. Uh, we've looked at Jesus through the notion of family, through the notion of work. And then last week, uh, Pastor Trey took us through the idea of looking at him through the notion of spirituality. And today we look at him through the principles of and the idea of leadership. And, and I will tell you that, and Trey said this last week, but I want to remind you, and especially if you're new here today, um, there's going to be a lot of review from last week because last week's message and this week's message really go together. So Trey did Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 last week. I'm supposed to do verses 13 through 18, but I need to review 1 through 12 in order to get us uh, the proper context for 13 through 18. And so we're going we're gonna to go through the whole thing again, just sort of reviewing before we get to um, the leadership part. And I will tell you that most of the leadership that we're looking at today is not very good leadership because it's from Herod, but we're going to end on a high note uh, with Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about the principle or the issue or the art or the science of leadership. However you would look at leadership, however you might want to describe it, leadership is still a hot commodity that people like to have conferences about and write books about. And there are many books on leadership. I'm sure many of you or all of you have, have read several books or at least one book on leadership. Maybe you've listened to books on leadership. You follow leadership podcasts, uh, whatever. I think one of the great questions about leadership is this. Is leadership primarily about instinct or principles? Another way that people put it is, is this. Is leadership primarily an art form or is it science, something that you can study scientifically. And I would argue that it's both. Uh, there's, a, there's a leadership book that was written some years ago that a lot of people say is sort of the bellwether for leadership. It's John Maxwell's book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Anybody heard of that book or read it? Okay, so it, it's, a, it's a pretty well-known book. But listen to that title, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. That would be a book the science of leadership, okay? But in reality, leadership is also about instinct. It's also about 
uh, in many ways, a giftedness that maybe God has given you. Uh, you can have all the principles of good leadership, but you'll also need some instinct. You'll need some timing. It's, like, it, it's kind of like being a stand-up comedian. You can have great content, but if you don't have an instinct, if you don't have attunement with your audience, if you don't have good timing, you're probably not going to be that funny. And in Scripture, we see many examples of flawed leadership. Flawed leadership. So in a way, we learn from the negative examples in Scripture. It seems that the few good leaderships, uh, leader, leaders in Scripture, however, had, and if you'll pardon the self-serving redemption notice, uh, good leaders in Scripture had an outward focus. We say at Redemption Church that we're gospel-centered and we're outward-focused, but really the good leaders in Scripture always had an outward focus. Now, just a little note there. Isn't it ironic how... Self-serving principles and self-focus almost always get us in trouble and damage us. So, you know, I just personally, I went through my own leadership phase big time. I was very absorbed with leadership. I was reading the books. I was going to conferences. And I thought I was really learning and seeking and developing in my leadership. But here's what I discovered. While all of that can be good and helpful, and I would encourage you to do it, it actually doesn't do much unless, first and foremost, I am willing to submit myself to the reality, the love, the grace, and the power of Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit when it comes to leadership. So you can have all those principles, but if you're not in tune with Jesus, it's probably not going to make that big of a difference. And we'll see that, I think, in the passage today. What I found is that without the humble foundation of Jesus... All the other stuff that I read, that I attended, and that I spent money on actually in some ways became a distraction from what I needed the most. What I need the most is Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So even with all this help, the books, the recordings, the conferences, the flying to Chicago and, listen, and going to conferences there, whatever natural leadership ability or instinct I might have had, I could have easily become another Herod without the foundation, the formation, and the faith of Jesus. All of us could become another Herod without that foundation. In our passage today, we will see that when Herod heard about Jesus, rather than humbly submitting and joyously glorifying the birth of the Savior, the event of the birth of Jesus caused Herod in a frenzy of insecurity, self-centeredness, and self-aggrandizement. It caused him to attempt to seize power and control. So let's start with Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star rose and have come to worship him. When the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here we go, a lot of review. This, this idea of the wise men, the Magoi the Magi. They're not really wise men in the Solomonic sense. The word Magoi actually doesn't mean wise men. 
Rather, these guys were astrologers who would work in the courts of the kings or other leaders in the nations. They would counsel them about war and politics and crops and the economy. And they would do it based on their readings of the star formations. They, they, were, they were astrologers. And today, today, they would be the people that write horoscopes. Now, what we need to understand is that <clears throat> while we consider most of that nonsense, these guys were highly esteemed in their time and, their, and in their place. And they were considered good sources of wise counsel based on their assessment of the cosmos. So that's why in some translations, like the ESV, which is what we use here, translate Magoi as wise men. So, I, I don't know, I think words and context and language are fun. Those kinds of things intrigue me. What we also need to understand about these guys is that they wanted to do the right thing. They so easily could have submitted themselves to the evil and the insecurity and the schemes of Herod, but, but God got a hold of them, and so they knew better. So let me give you a little preview about Herod, okay? As a leader, Herod was a psychopath, and he was transparent. Now, most psychopaths are transparent, but part of what makes them psychopaths is that they have no idea how transparent they are. Psychopaths almost always have egos the size of Texas and think that no one can figure them out, but everybody can kind of figure them out. That's the thing. They are also incredibly insecure, but will front that insecurity with bravado and false confidence. So this is an accurate assessment of Herod. What's also interesting about how Herod responds to the birth of Jesus is that it becomes a harbinger or a foreshadowing of how the Jewish professional religious people, we call them at Redemption Arcadia the perps, professional religious people, PRP, so they're the perps, how they would respond to Jesus' ministry some 30 years later. And Trey talked about this last week. In fact, in verse 3, when Herod heard of Jesus' birth and that he was the prophesied king of the Jews, not only was Herod troubled, but all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And so what that is referencing is all the Jewish perps who were already feeling like their power and status were being threatened by the birth of this baby. The birth of a baby they were threatened by. You know, if you want to help lend credence to a myth or a legend or a prophetic utterance, respond to it like it's real. That'll help lend credence to it. Herod and the perps are simply fanning the flames by being so freaked out at the birth of Jesus. So Herod assembles all the leaders, all the religious leaders, to ask them, where is this baby? And here is, is something that's also very ironic. They quote Micah chapter 5, a prophetic utterance in the Old Testament. In verse 6, they quote their own prophetic scriptures, a quote that confirms that this is real and that Jesus is the Savior. And yet rather than glorifying and celebrating and humbly submitting, they plot Jesus' demise. This whole idea of executing the Messiah did not start with Jesus' ministry. The power and the status of these professional religious people, of the, of the political leaders, was already threatened from the very beginning with Jesus' birth. And it caused all sorts of poor and destructive leadership choices. 
Now, there were no books or conferences or podcasts that were going to help Herod and the perps at that time, unless maybe they read Plato. And even then, I don't know that Plato could have helped them either. And so what happens next, verses 7 through 12, then Herod summoned the wise men, the Megoi, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. You have found him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. For listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Herod is quite the conniver. He's trying to use these guys to scope out where Jesus is so that he could easily eliminate him. Uh, you know, we need to understand that the truth always sounds foolish to those who are not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. The truth always sounds foolish by those who are not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And further, the truth always scares those who have not built their lives on it. Truth always scares people who have not built their lives on truth. Herod's response is similar to today. It's hostility toward faith. The idea of faith in God makes many people feel insecure. Many people feel insecure when they're around somebody who has faith in God. The idea of faith takes the focus off us and puts it where it belongs, on God. But most people are not only uncomfortable with that, but they actively rebel against that. The idea of faith appears childish, foolish, and threatening to those who are in power or those who seek to acquire power only for their benefit. At any rate, this scheme by Herod does not dampen uh, the wise men's enthusiasm for having the privilege of visiting Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and showing Jesus their love and joy and gratitude, and their commitment by giving him gifts. And what of the gifts? Well, again, Trey talked about these last week. I'll remind you. I, gold, I think we get that. That's a pretty good gift. But frankincense. So, no, <clears throat> frankincense is not what people call it when I get mad because the Blackhawks last, lost a game. That's a dad joke, and some of you will actually get that on the way home in the car today, okay? But frankincense is an ancient, valuable perfume or oil that has been used all over the Middle East, Africa, and India for thousands of years some claim that there are health benefits from using frankincense, that it can help with joint pain and respiratory issues and oral health. But here in this case, there's also an important symbolic quality to the Magi bringing frankincense to Jesus. It represents the deity of Jesus. In the Old Testament, frankincense was traditionally burned in the temple as an offering to God and to symbolize the presence of God in the temple. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 2. So by bringing this gift, the Magi are proclaiming that Jesus is no ordinary human being. It's very important to understand that. And then what about the myrrh? 
And has myrrh ever been a wordle word? Does anybody know if myrrh's ever been a wordle word? Anyway, so myrrh is a type of gum resin extracted from trees, and its medicinal qualities are that it helps with beautifying skin and calming digestive issues. So I eat a lot of Cheetos, so I keep myrrh around the house for that. So. But again, it, it has important symbolic significance in this context because it was used in ancient Israelite temple worship as an ingredient in the holy anointing oil for consecrating priests, consecrating any tabernacle, or consecrating kings into their new leadership position. So this visit by the Magi is significant. But when it ended, God used a dream to let the Magi know that they needed to avoid Herod. Now, dreams are a pretty important way that God would communicate to his chosen emissaries in the Bible. Um, uh, there are a couple examples. Uh, God communicated with Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50 through dreams. And, of course, God communicated with Daniel also in the Old Testament through dreams as well. You should read the book of of Daniel and see how that works. And so all of this sets up these last six verses, which is uh, where we're going to concentrate the rest of our time. So verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, there's a dream again, and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Isn't that interesting that Israel's history is that they left the slavery of Egypt, and the only way that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are going to find safety from Herod is to flee to Egypt. I find that ironic. And he said, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they, were, they are no more. So in verses 13 through 15, uh, there are more God dreams. Joseph is told by God to take Jesus to Egypt, ironically, for his safety, because of what Herod is going to do when he finds out that he's been uh, deceived by the Magi. But furthermore, and importantly, this is also what drives the fulfilling of Hosea. It's a prophetic text in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, which is quoted in verse 15. But then the final devastating nastiness of Herod in verse 16. Herod is so worried about Jesus that he devises a scheme in which every male baby, two years and younger, in the land is to be murdered just so that Herod could be sure that he got Jesus. But Herod is foiled again, this time by God and Joseph. So Herod actually died a year or two later, we know that from history, which then allowed the Messianic family to return to the region and for Jesus to start his public ministry some three decades later. And you can read all about that public ministry in the rest of the book of Matthew and in the three other uh, Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John. What else you'll read about 
in these gospel stories of Jesus, these historical records of Jesus' ministry, his life, death, and resurrection, you'll read about the purpose for which Jesus was born in the first place. He was born to go to the cross for our sins and then to be resurrected in order to reconcile us to God and to be given a new life where we eventually end up in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, with Jesus. So in other words, Jesus was born to die. We don't have Easter without Christmas. But also, we don't really care about Christmas without Easter. That's the whole idea. So Matthew ends this part of the narrative by quoting Jeremiah 31. The children being those Jews that were in the Babylonian exile some 600 years earlier. And God eventually saved his people from the great exile in Babylon, just like he would save the royal family out of, out of Egypt. And through Jesus, God saves us from our own exile in which we are ensconced by sin because Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus has washed it white as snow. So ultimately, the greatest leader in this story turns out not to be Herod, obviously, but eventually it turns out to be Jesus. So why is that? We're going to end with four biblical leadership principles that we can extract from this. Here's number one. Leadership is an exalted position, but it takes sacrifice to get there and to stay there. Now, ironically, it takes sacrifice. Ironically, Herod was very willing to sacrifice others in order to keep his leadership position of power and status. Jesus, however, came expressly and specifically to satisfy himself, not for the benefit of himself, but for the benefit of others. So Jesus sacrificed in his leadership, but he sacrificed for others. He sacrificed himself. Second of all, leadership is something that is made much better when a leader asks clarifying questions before coming to conclusions. It appears that Herod is allergic to asking clarifying questions and therefore goes forward on his own conclusions without the benefit of more information and without the benefit of wise counsel from others. Jesus, of course, not only had exceptional answers to questions, but he also knew how to ask the right questions. In his exchange with people, you read about this again in the Gospels, uh, interesting thing, when questions came up in the Gospels, two things always happened. Number one, Jesus would often ask a question in return when he was asked a question. Or here's the other thing that I really like. Uh, when somebody would ask him a question, he would end up asking, answering the question that the person should have asked in the first place but wasn't smart enough to ask in the first place. So he's good at asking questions, but he's also good at giving answers to the right questions. Now, this next one, the third one, is connected to the last one, but it's so important that I thought I'd give it a little bit of time on its own. Forbes magazine often asks top CEOs, what is the most important part of being a good leader? And invariably, the top leaders of, of, of corporations will answer that the number one attribute of good leadership is listening. It's listening. And we can see again from this narrative that Herod seems to be an anti-listener. Now, I recognize that you also might look at Jesus and say something like, yeah, well, when I read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus is the one doing most of the talking. And yes, that's fair. I'll give you that. But 
Also, in the Gospels, how often do we see him listening to the Father? And he says, I listen to the Father. He's always seeking the Father. He's always listening to the Father. And maybe it's not so much that we should be good listeners, but we should, we should be good listeners to the best sources. You know, are we reading our Bible? Are we praying? Are we seeking the will of God, especially in over and against our own will? Are we, are we willing to seek counsel from people who have wisdom, but who also might offer a different perspective than the one we want them to offer us? Are we willing to listen to somebody who's going to push back a little bit? Here's the last one. Good leaders take responsibility. Have you ever been led by anyone in any situation who when something goes wrong, they're always looking to push the blame onto somebody else and not themselves? I'm, I'm guessing that most of us in this room have been led by somebody like that. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus takes all the blame for our sin and then by the, the power and the sacrifice that he takes on the cross, he gives us new life and makes us new creation. He takes all the blame for what we've done in order to give us life. That's the cross and the resurrection. Now listen, I get it. I get it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's a pretty good leader, too. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would uh, be people who would seek wise counsel and who would be filled with your Holy Spirit when it comes to leadership. And God, we thank you for, we even thank you for the negative example of Herod that we can learn from it. And God, I just pray that we would be people who would pursue after Jesus in the midst of our quest for leadership our quest for leadership, principles and instinct. Let that instinct come from your Holy Spirit, from your word, and from being connected to you in prayer and through the community of faith. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to uh, enter our time of uh, response and reflection. We're going to take communion together. We're going to sing one more uh, song together. If our communion servers would please uh, come forward. So this is at the other end of Jesus' life. It's the night that he was betrayed. He's with his friends, his disciples, and they're having the Passover meal together. And at one point during the meal, Jesus picks up the bread, and after giving thanks, he breaks it. And he said, this is my body, and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had supped on the bread, he picked up the cup, the Thanksgiving cup, actually, that's filled with wine. And he held it up and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood and it's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And Advent is a season of anticipating the coming of the Lord. The fact that he's come once and that he's coming again. And so when we step out into that aisle to come forward to take the bread and the cup, we are confessing our sin 
and we are confessing our need for a Savior. And we are confessing the fact that Jesus is our Savior. We are in Christ when we do that. But we also come in anticipation and celebration that Jesus has come and that he's coming again and that we are saved and we are reconciled to the Father. So this is a time that is sacred, but it's also a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time of faith and it's a time of community and communion. So as we sing this last song and you come forward and before Zach comes to give our benediction, let's do that now.
Church, what an honor and a pleasure to worship with you this morning. As we go out into the world, may our hearts be filled. May we go in the strength of the Lord. And so let me read this out of Hebrews, that we might have confidence as we go out into the world. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Church, we love you. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We will see you next week.